And today we're reading Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The word of the Lord. So this Advent season, we are looking at various psalms that speak into our reality and the anticipation that we have and waiting upon the Lord and Christ, uh, celebrating Christ's coming at Christmas, but also waiting his second coming one day. And this morning, I want to start with the question of how can we better prepare spiritually for celebrating Christ's coming this Advent season? When we think about the whole idea of preparation, I think we often think about preparation as something we complete. We're trying to prepare to get something done, right? For instance, I want to prepare my decorations in the house. I've got my lights up outside. It's done. But preparation can also be seen much more in terms of waiting or the place that waiting plays in preparation. For instance, when we are going through difficulties in life, we realize that in our faith, that is part of waiting. We're waiting for God to show up. We're waiting for God to redeem our circumstances, to rescue us from various challenges. We also know that waiting is part of our faith in terms of something we anticipate, something great, something peaceful, whole, joyful, and perfect awaits us in Jesus and that life that awaits us in all eternity that we look forward to. You see, we live between the advents of Christ's first coming, his present presence with us, as well as his eventual return one day when he comes to set all things right. And in the midst of that, waiting is hard work. As the fullness of time devotional we made available says, waiting is a time for preparation, for the coming of Christ, for the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, for the embrace of God warmly and securely enfolding each of us. Our patience, our preparation is a sign of our hope in the good things to come. That as Advent people, we anticipate that the Lord is one day going to return. The psalm that Betty read anticipates that. We read this song of praise about God, and it announces that there is great hope as we glorify the God and creator of the universe. It combines a sense of feeling responsive to the beauty of God in creation and a profound understanding of the revelation of God expressed and hidden in nature. 
What captivates the writer of the psalm most, though, is that no matter, no, not so much the wonder of the contemplation of the starlit or the stars in the sky or the morning air or light that comes to us, but the knowledge that the creator of the universe has invaded this world in order to be in relationship with us. It is for him, the divine creator, that this song is sung and is given in glory to God. For just as the expanse of the sky glorifies God and encompasses this world with his glory, so that glory is meant to spread over all the earth. And as we know, in the various Christmas stories, it is often angels who announce that glory at the first Christmas. Just think of the angel Gabriel, for instance. His getting to announce to Mary that she would be the earthly mother of our Messiah. I remember one Christmas Eve depicting this in a drama and just thinking about Gabriel being in heaven with the Father and Jesus the Son and preparing for Jesus' coming and getting to announce that coming to Mary. I remember thinking about Gabriel being there, asking the Father, is it time yet? Is it time? Can, can I go and tell her? Can I, can I go let her know that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah? I imagine it was hard for Gabriel to wait to make that announcement. And I get just this wonder and awe of when the father finally says, it's time. And Gabriel comes down and <laughs> to this amazed and shocked and awed Mary announces that she, a virgin, is going to be the mother of the Messiah. Surprise is the one word we might sum up Gabriel's message. And yet in Gabriel's angelic announcement to Mary, what we get is a reflection of this type of psalm and the way God announces his salvation and announces who he is and how that makes the difference in our understanding of who we are. The Lord announces his presence through this psalm. He speaks of, it speaks of the Lord being our Lord. And that's the critical change, isn't it? It's one thing to say God is the Lord of the universe. That he's created everything. But the critical shift in life and in faith is to say he's our Lord. He's my Lord. I got to spend some time with uh, someone in a care home recently, and, and uh, it was one of those where the wife sent me to go spend time with her husband because she just needed to know that he knew where he was going. And I remember asking that person, can, can you tell me, is Jesus your Lord and Savior? And he smiled. He says, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Do you know where you're going? I know where I'm going. I know, I know that this world is not all there is. That person made the fundamental shift of understanding Lord and the, the, the Lord is the, the one who's over all, but then is in all. He's in those who accept him and welcome him as their, as their savior. That person made that fundamental decision and shift that makes all the difference in life. But people need that salvation announced to them, don't they? And God often used angels to do that. And he uses the Psalms to do that, which is why we're centering our Advent messages on the Psalms this year. We not only find that the Lord is, is our Lord, can be our personal Savior, but also that his name is majestic in all the earth. 
that he set his glory above the heavens and he ordained praise from the lips of children and infants. The vast majority of this psalm, the the meat of it, so to speak, speaks about who we are as human beings and helping us understand the role and place that we play in creation. But notice that it's set out first in our understanding of who the Lord is. The Lord, our Lord, is majestic in all the earth. He set his glory above the heavens. And what that means is the only way we are going to understand who we are is if we look at who we are in light of who he is. If we miss out on who he is as the Lord of the universe, the one who created it all, the one who came into time and space in the person of Jesus, friends, we will never understand who we are. What ends up happening as a result, if we miss out on understanding the Lord and the announcement of his presence and who he is, is two things. We'll either elevate ourselves to the place of God and try and be in control and manage our universe, and we will fail utterly, or we'll miss out on the worth and value that God has seen in us as his created beings. Understanding who God is then helps us understand who we are. He is the creator of the universe. He set his glory in the heavens. We look up to the sky and we somehow know that he's there and he is here with us. And he gives us this song, this psalm to make that fundamental transition of God is the Lord of the universe to our own personal Lord. And it fills us with wonder and awe at the living reality of God who encompasses the whole earth and compels us to worship him. The poet is so firmly rooted in his faith in God that he cannot help believe that it has worldwide implications. That not only is the Lord the the one who set the glory, his glory over all the earth, and not only is that God the one who intersects us personally and wants to make himself known to us personally, but he wants himself known throughout the whole world. It's It's God's name that he honors and glorifies through his actions and through his ultimate coming in Jesus. This psalm then sets a celebration of the glory of the Lord in the context of our worship. It gives us the opportunity to rehearse once again what he has done. And friends, we need to again and again rehearse what he has done. For psalms like this give us language and voice to acknowledge our God as the Lord of glory. And that this theme, this understanding of God's glory is then one that becomes central to the Christmas story. For in the angelic announcements, not only to Mary, but to the shepherds, we hear again and again the affirmation of the Lord of glory who would ultimately come and touch down in his glory on this earth. As far back as 1 Chronicles 16, 8 through 10, it says, Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known among the nations what he has done. Sing praise to him, sing praise to him. Tell all of his wonderful acts, glory in his name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Early in the Old Testament, we're given language and voice for our praise of God and that we're meant to honor him and his glory, the way he's revealed himself. And so it's no wonder then that when the angels come to the shepherds, they announce that same glory. In Luke 2, 8 through 15, it tells us, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. 
An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And then here's the explosion of praise. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And then when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. In other words, the Lord announces who he is in his glory and reveals his presence in the earth. He sends angels to make that announcement. But what happens once they make that announcement? Others are empowered to witness to him as well. Human beings, shepherds, People on the lowest scale of society are given the news to then go to share with other people. Friends, when the Lord announces who he is and reveals his glory, when he sends angels to the earth to announce that glory, we are meant to receive that news and go and share it with other people. Other Psalms pick up on this same theme. Psalm 57.5 and 108.5 say, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And Psalm 113.4 says, The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. And in Psalm 148.13, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is, is, is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. The Lord reveals who he is in his creation. He reveals that he's not only the Lord of the universe, but wants to be our personal Lord and Savior. He affirms his name is majestic over all the earth, and he sets his glory above the heavens. But then we're told that he ordained praise on the lips of infants and children. Why? Because it's often children who are most aware of the wonder and awe of the created universe. You can't spend time with young children and toddlers without becoming quickly aware that they most often look up and are just kind of caught up in their surroundings. It's we adults and those who are becoming seasoned in life who I think often look down more and more to the created world, to human solutions, to human problems. Children and infants are most prone to look up and sort of just naturally acknowledge the wonder and awe around us. I love going on a hike and one of the beautiful trails in our surrounding area with an infant or or toddler who just kind of toddles along and each rock and twig and, and tree is a sign of wonder just by itself. And basically what the text is saying is the adversaries of God, and let's include skeptics and atheists in this, cannot disregard the fact that children utterly surrender to the impression produced by things which are great and glorious and around them. As children are aware of that wonder and awe that, that of the created world and seem to echo the, the presence and glory of God in their words, And in their understanding of the universe, 
Skeptics and atheists really have no answer for that wonder and awe. Regardless of how the wicked assert themselves, they cannot outdo the evidence of the glory of God on earth and in heaven. His glory is established, ordained, and no enemy can overcome his kingdom and coming. The mighty God in his revealed glory leads us to give him wonder, praise, and awe. At one point, during Jesus' triumphal entry, when the king of the universe is revealing his kingship on earth, and he comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, the religious leaders say, you know, why are you letting these infants and children sing and make noise? Do you hear what these children are saying, proclaiming him Lord? And in answer, Jesus replied, have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? This is exactly what God planned, that he would lead young children into giving him honor and praise. The psalmist who declares that the Lord announces his glory then tells us to consider who we are in light of who God is. The psalmist says, what is man that you are mindful of him? That you made him a little lower than the angels or heavenly beings. You crowned him with glory and honor. What is man? The question is raised. From within the framework of creation, the wonder of the universe, we could say that men and women are insignificant in comparison with God and his glory. And we need to understand and embrace our smallness, so to speak, in that way. But then we also need to embrace the beauty and grandeur and wonder of the fact that ours is the planet that God actually visited. That as C.S. Lewis said, Earth is the visited planet. And if God was willing to visit this planet in the person of his son, and if he visits it each and every day with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, and he one day will come back to this earth to set all things right, who is man? What is man? The ones who reflect God's glory the most in being made in his likeness and image. You see, what this psalm is doing is pointing us back to To Genesis, isn't it? That we were made in the image of God in his likeness. And we were actually given dominion over this universe. That we both reflect God's rule, but we also participate in that rule. When we understand who God is and we understand who we are in light of him, we gain amazing perspective That in comparison with God the creator, we are only a creature. We are finite and limited. But in God's coming and embracing of our humanity through the person of his son Jesus, we are caught up in the wonder and awe of possibility in relationship with him. What is man? In one sense we say nothing, infinite, mortal, limited. But then we say what is man? Made holy right, brought into the amazing privilege of a relationship with God. When we ask that question, when wrestle with who we are in light of who God is, ultimately our eyes are lifted up to the amazing nature of the God who communicates with us. Often that communication, uh, a bridge is built through angelic intermediaries who announce his presence and his glory But also it comes through the fact that God entrusts great responsibility to us in sharing his rule. 
We experience his presence and power as we go about living our lives. We recognize that we are created in the image of God and in his likeness. And in that, we have great worth and value. That God didn't just make us. God both made us as representatives, but also meant to be his representation on earth. Man is described here as a little lower than the heavenly beings. Although men and women are given a position midway between angels and and beasts, it is nevertheless humanity's privilege and duty to look upward to the angels, but more through angels to ultimately to who God is rather than look downward to the beasts. In other words, when we look up and we recognize that this world is not all there is, that there is a God who created it, who is above it, but also stepped down in it, we start to realize more of who we are. And instead of looking down and becoming limited by that, looking for human answers to human problems, we look up and we recognize that God, through the coming of His Son Jesus, is the answer. Psalm 8 is picked up by the author of Hebrews when he referred the text ultimately to Jesus, saying that in the incarnation, God made him a little lower than the angels for the purpose of achieving our salvation. But here's the sad thing. Although man is made in God's image and ordained to become increasingly like the God to whom we are to look, men and women instead have turned their backs on God and missed out on the honor and privilege of relationship with him. The invitation then this Advent or Christmas season is to recognize that God cares about us, cares about us enough to come for us in the person of Jesus, but cares about us enough still to continue to come and be among us. That as Tim Keller says in The Meaning of Christmas, Christmas tells us that despite all appearances to the contrary, our good God is in control of history. And someday he will put everything right. Some of our inward rest comes when the Spirit reminds us of all this final salvation and ultimate rest. We have then a powerful hope in the future that is not mere optimism. It is a certainty that at the end of all things, all will be well. And that this can give us peace and strength when dealing with the trials and tragedies of the present. Christmas, you see, means that through the grace of God and the incarnation, peace with God is available. And if you make peace with God, then you can go out and make peace with everybody else. And the more people who embrace the gospel of peace and do that, the better off the world is. Christmas, therefore, means the increase of peace both with God and between people across the face of the world because of Christ's coming. You see, the one who was ultimately made a little lower than the angels and was crowned with glory was Christ himself. And in his coming, in the announcement of his coming in glory, we find that one day we will be lifted up with him as well and crowned with glory and honor one day with him in the kingdom of God. My question for you then in this is, what are you waiting for? To God, for God to do right now? Where are you hoping to see his salvation? And how are you preparing for his coming? How is God giving you or growing you in the process of anticipation and waiting? For God doesn't call us to wait by accident or for no reason. No, 
our waiting becomes an act of anticipation and hope that we are not alone and that one day he will come again. In communion, we celebrate the time between the Advents. We celebrate the fact that Christ has come and not only was born on earth in the humble form of a baby, but grew up and ultimately died a death on the cross for us and for our salvation. We also celebrate communion because we believe Jesus is here now in the bread and the cup, and he's here with us in spirit as we celebrate. But we also partake of communion in the midst of the Advents, knowing that one day we will partake of this meal in the kingdom of God, and that meal will never end. Lord bless you and keep you make his face shine upon and be gracious to you Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Let's lift up our together.